Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of the Incidental Encyclical podcast. This is going to be a little more casual, sort of similar to our past bonus episodes. Sam and I are just sitting down to break ground on writing our lead essay and uh, perhaps throwing out some ideas for my translation piece for the upcoming issue. Sam, could you remind me, what is the exact title of our issue? I always forget. Um, the upcoming issue is Wisdom in Desert Places. Wisdom in Desert Places. Well, there we go. And um, the key work I think that Sam and I are going to be thinking about writing and sort of throwing ideas back and forth about here is Seneca's letter to Helvia, or the consolation to his mother Helvia. And um, part of, you know, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher of the um, early Roman imperial period. And um, yeah, I think that's probably a good place to start, just throwing out ideas of, you know, how to write about Stoicism as a philosophical system with all its modern and ancient baggage is, I think, where we'll be starting. Yeah, this is a daunting project, much like the project we had last quarter of writing about the Odyssey. I think in this, this one may be somewhat more daunting, if only because misinterpretations of Stoicism are so rife. And according to a paper published last year in the Journal of Happiness Studies, there is actually a scientifically proven negative association between Stoic ideology and mental well-being. So not Stoic philosophy, the odd permutations of it. Um, so it's definitely not something to treat lightly because clearly uh, those that do <laughs> don't come out the better for it. But it's not the point of Stoicism, is it? Stoicism is meant to give you better, more control of your life, help you have a more content life and help you have a better life. So Levi, what is the deal with Stoicism? Where did it come from and where does Seneca fit into its timeline? Well, Stoicism, as you know, all quintessentially Roman things are, is originally Greek. What a and... shock. <laughs> what a shocker. It started in... Oh gosh, let me let me think for a second. It was um sort of uh, later classical um, classical Greece started in Athens, as all great ideas do. The first known Stoic philosopher um, was uh, Zeno, and his thought was developed, um, you know, kind of across the four or five centuries uh, following his life, and and Seneca sort of finds himself in among the later Stoics, uh, sort of his contemporaries and his own sort of later followers uh, are some of the more famous Stoics, uh, Epictetus, and obviously most famously of all, perhaps the uh, Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And Stoicism's lifespan is sort of interesting from Aurelius onwards, because it's not like it's ever gone away in Western thought, but with the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire, um, there wasn't necessarily a need for a pagan system of thought that taught you how to be content. However, there were still plenty of Stoic elements that wound up in the writings of the Church Fathers. Um, and there were definitely thinkers in within the Stoic movement who were seen to be holding pretty rich nuggets of wisdom. So it's an interesting movement, as you've outlined, lasting from the sort of Athenian golden age slightly earlier into the um, kind of decline of the Roman imperial system um, with Marcus Aurelius being one of the last, how would you describe it? One of the few emperors who kind of was still trying to hold things together yeah, in, yeah. The, in the classical Republican 
ideal. And yeah, from then onwards, it's had an interesting life as something that has always been mentioned or observed, but hasn't got its own schools anymore. It hasn't got its own, uh, hasn't got its own body per se anymore uh, until today, really enough. <laughs> yeah, until until some, I don't know, Jim Bros decided to, you know, dig up the old Stoic philosophy and interpret it as, oh, that's not, that's not entirely fair to, uh, <laughs> to, to all of modern Stoicism. To be fair, like but there are, it you know, it is some... true that you do get a lot of books like Stoicism and the Art of Finance, or Stoicism and uh, your inner peace, or something like that. Like, there's it, it's become sort of a weird brick in the self help edifice. I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, and that self help can be, you know, uh, a sort of more hippie oriented mindfulness thing, or it can be more of an aggressive take control of your life, sort of um, getting control of your money and your body. And but it's um, yeah, it's become sort of slotted into this this modern obsession with um, self help and self improvement. Oh yeah. And is that no, so, I... Levi? Do you think that's a justified um, development? Like, should stoicism have been plugged into this system or should it maybe be the other way around that this system be plugged into the stoic framework it's interesting because it's it's hard to speak of a stoic framework because you know as as all schools of philosophy are like it goes through sort of many evolutions of thought across mm. its time and as i mean let's say like what the connection that you know the self-help world and the stoic and, you know, ancient Stoic philosophy, the connection that's drawn there is sort of, you know, the ancient Stoic idea of, you know, yeah, virtue is sufficient for, for well-being and, you know, uh, yeah, exactly, a sort of sense of contentment and uh, emotional resilience in the face of misfortune. They're not taking up, you know, the other aspects of, you know, Stoic logic and Stoic physics and, you know, the the way in which mm. there was sort of a complete set of I don't know, a metaphysics around Stoicism, um, more than just, let's say, the moral philosophy. So, you know, it would be difficult to, to plug the modern economic system into a Stoic framework. I'd like to see it done now that you've mm. given me that idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's but, hard uh, as well, because we're talking about um, authors. I mean, the Roman Stoics are... Uh, among the more famous thinkers in the movement but that's mostly or or in great part because we actually have their writings <laughs> extent <laughs> um i mean um you mentioned that zeno is the founder do we have any book of zeno's like still in existence today uh no they're all all fragmentary quotations um and you know pseudo zeno works you know where there's mm. a book that was probably written in like the 600s but everyone thinks you know i yeah. We'll put Zeno's name on it. Yeah, it's some yeah. some devotee who's who's spent his life kind of in the system and has just assigned his teacher's name or his his teacher's teacher's name to it because it's within the movement. Something that you see, exactly. yeah, all all over the uh, ancient and even the medieval worlds. It can infuriate sometimes um, modern scholars, of particular penchant, you know, that there are a thousand more works by Hippocrates and he could have ever written in a lifetime, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just the way in which that world was perceived. Uh, how, we've got Harry joining us now. Um, I'm not sure if Harry's audio is connected. Can you hear us, Harry? Howdy, howdy. Levi's just been giving us an overview of the Stoic movement and where Seneca fits into its timeline mm. and, um, just some of the problems that the modern 
uh, student of Stoicism or, you know, person who wants to find out more about Stoicism would have in that. Levi's outlined that there aren't any extant works from the Greek founders of Stoicism. So Zeno doesn't have like mm. a big corpus of work left behind and that it wasn't a, a systematic philosophy in the same way that something like the Platonic school maybe was or the Aristotelian school was where there are countless branches all sort of falling under one roof, um, metaphysics, meteorology, all these sorts of things that, you know, you get in the works of Aristotle or Plato. That's not, uh, yeah, that's not the default for the Stoic writings. Right. There's this sort of um, preference for an uh, overall coherence rather than the systematic grouping of trains of thought and ideas and so on. That, that's um, actually absolutely how Seneca saw it, because he in um, one of his letters, um, letter 33, he's asked to provide like a, a series of maxims by uh, his uh, interlocutor or his um, you know student, a guy called Lucilius, who is trying to get some small system of, you know, little little nuggets of wisdom like so many modern moderns love i mean the ancients love this stuff too is just little quotation blocks that they can sort of plug into different uh, aspects of their life and enjoy the um the pithiness of and seneca sort of dismisses that and says well no i'm, I'm going to try and actually push you beyond superficiality here because maxims are they're, they're fitting for beginners uh, or for people outside of the stoic enterprise but it's the, the the enterprise itself is not a handful of maxims. And he tries to convince Lucilius that, as you're saying, Harry, it's about the cohesion of the whole. He, he, Seneca's view on the on the works of his Stoic predecessors is that you can't just take one passage out and treat it as though that's the wisdom in there. Because he says every line in the Stoic, in a in a Stoic text from one of the great Stoic thinkers is going to be as important as the other. They're not putting filler lines in just to kind of get you along until you make it to another nugget of wisdom. You shouldn't be taking anything out because the whole thing is meant to be a cohesive, cohesive idea. Which, which is interesting given the, you know, you have a look at the metaphysical sort of commitments of the Stoics where they have corporeal um, causes. So everything has, has a body. And they mm. sort of don't, so there's a, there's a materiality, there's a substance to sort of every working part. Um, there's, there's sort of an argument maybe, uh, maybe you'd like to comment on, which is sort of the, um, the, the there is a hint of nominalism when they talk about the figments of the mind um, that don't mm. have, th there are certain things that don't have a body. But when we talk about the determinism of our lives, there's a corporeal reality to the causes. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, yeah, shades of someone like William of Ockham, maybe, um, in, in some of their interpretations of particularly like Plato's metaphysics. Um, and like you're saying, a sort of nominalist, <clears throat> perhaps, understanding of, of certain things. Uh, I mean, interestingly, according to, according to Seneca, how he reads Plato is that humans aren't actually things that exist. <laughs> um that's his reading of plato because uh he reads he reads plato and and kind of takes away that well um humans and any other physical thing are constantly in flux so they don't exist in the platonic in the platonic conception only ideas um which are these these models you know the the these eternal unchanging sort of models 
exist and the IDOS exists, which is the formal idea that exists within a thing. So that's some an fairly Aristotelian understanding. Uh, and then, then he has ideas. He says that there are also things that kind of quasi exist, like time and the void, but he doesn't place humans within his kind of understanding of, of how the platonic corpus works. Now, this doesn't mean that Seneca is saying that the Stoic, this is a Stoic metaphysics. This is his reading of Plato. But it's interesting that, um, I, yeah, I find it interesting the way he's interpreting it has, I think, shades of what will become nominalism later in, in the philosophical history of the world. I sense there's almost a fear of things that you can't grab a hold of um, in the sense that there's this fear of the immaterial, in, there's a fear of the forms um, because there's this preference for um, taking hold of things that you can change and that you have, you can see cause and effect over. Um, I wonder if there's something to that. Well, I suppose as well, um, it's interesting that he reads um, he, he re it's interesting that he reads Plato in this way and leans very heavily towards an interpretation in which Plato denies any true existence of the material world. Um, not because I think that's what Seneca is trying to point the Stoic project towards, but as Levi was saying earlier, I wonder if Levi, you could expand on this. One of the key elements to Stoicism is the um, idea of virtue being sufficient. And virtue is something that um, I would assume would be placed more in this world of uh, unch the unchanging than it would in the uh, world of flux, the physical. Yes. Yeah. No. I I, I think so. so. I've never kind of interesting here. Like um, my my thoughts are going to be a little scattered because I've never actually really kind of drawn this connection from you know the 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 metaphysical to the ethical as much as i was saying like it's important to do that mm. otherwise you're interpreting things out of context it's not something i've ever made but like yeah off the off the top of that like um well the core of stoic philosophy if you want to if you want to put it somewhere is yeah and this idea that the virtue is sufficient it, um like you know that things happen but it's your response and your judgment of those events that is the core of virtue and also sort of the path towards happiness um and yeah, it is perhaps this, you know, yeah, this foundation of virtue and the, the proper course of action in this unchanging immateriality to be applied to uh, a physical world where, you know, things are changing and things happen with, with cause, but without purpose. Is mm. that perhaps a way to, to view it, perhaps? Um, yeah. I mean, I think maybe, like, because the, the Stoics aren't necessarily interested in in a metaphysics in which they're they're trying to like you know discern the form of the good or the beautiful like plato is at the top of the, mm. the pyramid but they do have a conception of a higher being or highest being um of a sort of a single god and in i think i think it's in the letter to healthier which we're turning to soon um <clears throat> plato uh, not plato sorry <laughs> seneca references that to the Stoics, it's ambiguous what this God is. Is the God uh, a spirit that is present in all created things and kind of moves them along? Is it some high, powerful God who created and set the universe in motion? Or is it perhaps some divine reason who has set the laws of the universe and created a divine, well, logos, if you will, that has rationally ordered the world towards the current disposition um which i think 
later Christian writers would have gone absolutely nuts on <laughs> because he <laughs> pretty much said, is it, a, is it, you know, supreme creator? Is it the divine logos or is it a spirit that infuses all things? And uh, <laughs> I'm sure that like the church fathers would have absolutely loved that passage. But uh, it's interesting. And I think what I want to draw out there is Seneca seems perhaps, at least in, in, in across several of his works, that I've encountered seems perhaps more convinced that it might be the divine reason or he once perhaps prefers it to be the divine reason he sees as the as God or as the cause of everything um and I think going back to the idea you know of is there a stoic metaphysics or how do the stoics look at the metaphysical reality informing their moral thought as we, we turn to the letter to Helvia, we'll see him constantly over and over as he's consoling his mother, advise her to place reason and allow reason to place reason above everything going on within her and to allow to conquer grief and conquer regret. And mm. so he's inviting her to take what he is sometimes presenting or sometimes hinting at being the supreme ordering principle of the universe. He's saying, take that principle where it exists in you and use it to bring other things into line and to align yourself. So that's an, yeah. I think, yeah, it's an interesting, as you're saying, Levi, you can't always understand the ethics or the moral system of philosophical movement uh, getting to their metaphysics. And while Seneca and other Stoics aren't writing down <laughs> in the same way that Plato and Aristotle are such works, there is there are enough hints that we can maybe understand the link between how they see the the, the cosmos and how they see the, the microcosmos, the man. Yeah. On that note, perhaps do we want to, to move on, perhaps focus slightly more particularly on, on the letter to Helvia? Yeah, let's and, do it. Hey, well, I mean, um, just as a, as a quick bit of context on, on Seneca's life and at which point this is being written, Seneca is born in, in Cordoba, in what is now modern Spain, um, obviously at that point, a Roman province. And he, he comes to Rome and he spends his, his life there. He's active in politics. And eventually he gets on the wrong side of the new ruling family. Claudius, I'm pretty sure, becomes emperor in his time. And uh, after some uh, improper relations, uh, uh, Seneca finds himself exiled uh, to Corsica. And it is from that point that he's writing this letter to his mother, Helvia, consoling her, trying to comfort a bereaved mother whose son is in exile, in a sense. Mm. Um, and he, he remarks in his letter on the irony of the fact here he is trying to console her, but he's also the cause of her grief. Uh, yeah, there is that difficulty present in the work itself, that it's his own exile, which he's using as the vehicle to try and bring her into this stoic way of being way of orienting yourself in the world he's using the exile as the vehicle to do that but the exile is the reason he needs to do that because if it wasn't for that fact she would uh, be quite happy <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh just before we go any further i'd like to just comment that that with the theme that we've got for the issue wisdom in desert places we're taking this work in particular because uh as the our interpretation of that theme for the ancient work of choice um there's a lot of stoic text out there and stoic texts uh are full of nuggets of wisdom i'm sure many people have a copy of marcus aurelius meditation sitting on the shelf that was given to them you know in their in their teens or 20s that um they've read 
parts of and greatly enjoyed because it is a thoroughly um, wonderful work full of plenty of moments of wisdom. But Seneca's letters from exile are particularly interesting because it is a very practiced or a very lived through moment of Stoic philosophy where he is a man who's been stripped of office, of wealth, of family, and sent out to Corsica, which he's going to later point out is a pretty barren place. There's no rivers, it's very mountainous, and uh, the inhabitants are unruly barbarians. Um, so how is it that, that the wisdom which he's built his life on, how is it that it's going to carry him, and by extension, the family who grieves him through this time? Right, and, and Seneca here, he has a, an excellent opportunity to lead by example. Mm. Um, unlike some of the other Stoics who didn't have such a massive material fall from grace, uh, Seneca has this opportunity to sort of put into practice what he's been saying in his letters, which I suppose can be interpreted as um, essays really in themselves. Mm. And it's, it is funny, as, as you said before, that um, he sort of continues to appeal to reason. Like, could you imagine sending a letter to your mum if you're uh, in, in exile or in prison or something and you, and, you, and you very quickly go into, well, let us consider what we mean by exile. You know, what, what... <laughs> Which he does. But, That's pretty much how he opens the letter. He says, right, uh, what does he say? He says, um, I'm going to ignore four aspects of exile for the time being. You know, I'm going to ignore uh, the shame and disgrace of, you know, political, uh, you know, ostracism. I'm going to ignore this aspect and that aspect and the loss of wealth. I'm just going to look at it in the context of moving from one place to another. And I'm going to thoroughly dismiss why that is a <laughs> negative thing, which is just, it comes across, it comes across very strange, like as you're saying. Uh, to turn to reason and say, let's think about the fact of exile simply being a translation of one's body to a new place. And is that a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you know, and, you know a, a late, uh, another quote in the letter is like, to be, to be deprived of one's country is intolerable, you say. But come now, behold this concourse of men. And it goes into like, oh, you know, there's a bunch of people who leave their countries. It's like, you know, you, you assume it's a bad thing. Why? Right. And there's this, there's, um, just before that section, there's a very interesting sort of line where he says that no man loses anything by the frowns of fortune unless he's been deceived first by her smiles. Mm, and it's what a great. Picture. I think that's a, that's such a key sort of point where um, there's a two-sided nature to fortune, and yeah. you can only, and if that if that's sort of the part of the unpredictable, if that's an unpredictable element or if that's a determined element beyond your, your causal powers to influence, you can only be upset by the outcome by first misunderstanding it, uh, by misunderstanding the nature of fortune. Mm. So as, yeah, as we've been saying, he opens this letter with, uh, as, we've, yeah, as we've been outlining, this breakdown of exile. As Harry said, he's trying to take this mentality that you cannot be shocked by the frowns of fortune unless you've been deceived by the by her smiles you know this this mentality that you you can't be fooled and lulled into a sense of security by having a comfortable life in one minute because it's um it's always possible that ruin will come to you and so he's he's breaking down as as you mentioned levi that look at the the concourse of peoples look at how the greeks have cities in uh india right? There is this Macedonian language exists among the Indies and the Persians, right? The, the Scythians, you know, have a Greek cities. The Gauls move here, the Greeks move there, the Germans move here, 
you know, even us Romans, we trace our lineage to the exile Prince Aeneas, who fled the destruction of Troy and lived as an exile in Latinum uh, and built his city there. Um, and then he even talks about famous Romans who have been exiled. And this is where I think the letter starts to get uh, <laughs> really interesting is when he talks about um, talks about Marcus Brutus in exile. And he says, uh, Marcus Brutus ennobled the state of exile simply through having been cast into it. <laughs> and those that visited him, when they left his company in exile, they felt as though they were the ones going into exile because this man held himself so nobly through this period that it seemed as though he wasn't the one being exiled. The rest of Rome was. <laughs> they were exiled from his presence. Um, so, yeah, he begins to kind of uh, change tact from merely saying, oh, people move around all the time to saying, well, there's a way in which you should orient yourself and should act when you translate from one place to a next, whatever the shame or lack thereof that accompanies it, there must be some way, because clearly there have been people like Marcus Brutus uh, who have done this and have been praised by the high consul of the day, by Marcellus and the Senate. Um, and, and a man who was so noble that even Caesar, you know, avoided his, his company because he uh, avoided company exile because he knew that he would be shamed going to see someone so noble in a state of exile so levi how would you break down the ways in which marcus aurelius is is changing tact here and introducing these marcus ideas. aurelius sam marcus aurelius <laughs> i've been saying marcus brutus so many times that I think <laughs> I'm just, I'm the wrong the wrong stoics entered my head i'll i'll need a minute to recover but yeah do you have um how would you comment on on the way that he's introducing you know from simply talking about sort of the the shape of the world and all people move all the time into an actual how we should go about our life well i think if anything you know we were talking at the beginning how uh you know stoicism gets misinterpreted and i think i think this is, is perhaps um is a, is a good place to point out you know I think the difference between Stoicism and what its modern misinterpretations sometimes make, because, you know, Seneca at the beginning of this letter uh, is sort of saying, you know, it could be interpreted at least as saying, you know, it's like, oh, it's it's not so bad. Oh, so I'll just have to stay strong through this time. But he's sort of pointing out, and I think this is, this is, I think, I think the key move of Stoic philosophy is saying, you know, yeah, going from, you know, all of, for all of these reasons, this is outside of my control, but it's, you know, it's bearable, it's manageable. I can suppress my emotions. He's going into, oh, no, there's actually a path of virtue through this where like, oh, this, this, this thing outside of my control has occurred. But if I apply the correct action, exert my agency to the effect that I can, there's actually a way to make it a virtuous moment. Mm. And mm. no, yeah, I think that's the, it's, it's a perhaps superficial observation, but that's sort of that move that he's making. Well, I think it's important because Nietzsche famously, you know, I mean, he had his flirtations with the Stoic writers, um, and Nietzsche is a hugely influential, yeah, thinker, <laughs> philosopher, yeah. and his interpretations are also widely misinterpreted. But misinterpreting Nietzsche, uh, you know, when he's writing about the Stoics means that you're you could you could possibly in one fell swoop misinterpret two entire bodies of, <laughs> of thought and writing. But Nietzsche famously, you know 
somewhat was dismissive of the Stoics of being too passive. Now, again, it's difficult to talk about because some of these works are published posthumously and he wouldn't have necessarily published them himself during his lifetime. Um, but some of his ideas of, you know, uh, of, of the driven man, um, I think he perhaps saw in opposition to the Stoic or, or what he might have interpreted as Stoic pacifism. But as you're saying here, no, 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 Seneca is writing about taking agency. Mm. He's offering mm. his mother, he's offering the reader examples of other Romans who have who have taken agency and through that have actually not just increased in virtue, but increased in reputation. Like the loss of reputation they suffered through exile is completely nullified by the way they conduct themselves. And everyone suddenly sees them as a man of such character that their exile to the Senate seems worse on, on behalf of the Romans than it does to the guy who's been sent away. So it's interesting because, yeah, it's not just simply, oh, well, you know, I'm in exile, I'm just going to sit back and, and kind of calmly, you know, think about my life, because there's something active as well, in insofar mm. as the pursuit of virtue isn't just simply, I will let certain things happen to me and not complain too much. Yeah, it's it's not just uh, an unconditional acceptance of the way things are. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not that pacifist um, approach to life. It, there's this sort of very common sort of um, appreciation of the Stoics as complete determinists uh, and that they're, you know, because of their metaphysical system, there's sort of no way they can escape this. And they have, you know, there's sort of responses to a number of these problems, like the lazy, the lazy problem or the lazy question. Mm. But th that's important to note that the Stoics in their writings are appealing to an imposition of will that mm. there are things, there are actions you can take. It isn't simply a sit back and just uh, deal with it. It isn't a, you can deal with the struggles, but there's nothing you can do. There is a way out. There is a path to virtue and there are actions you can't take. Um, it's not a, it's not a resignation to fate. And there's hints of this sort of stuff that maybe don't come across as super obvious, but in, in section 12, the letter to Helvia, he's talking about poverty. He's trying to dismiss the notion that poverty is an evil, right? Um, because poverty does accompany exile. Uh, but he's, you know, he's inviting someone to consider the fact that there are more poor people than there are rich people and that they're not necessarily more unhappy. In fact, sometimes they are indeed much happier because they have, as he says, fewer things to distract their minds. Um, but he goes on and he's talking about the fact that in their luxurious age, they live in, in such contrast to the ancestors and to the founders of their, their culture that it's almost shameful to think of the fact that, and he mentions here, Homer had one slave, Plato had three, and Zeno, who first taught the sterner masculine doctrine of the Stoics, had none. Yet how could anyone say they live wretchedly without himself being thought the most pitiable wretch by all men? So I want to, like, it's important to highlight that <laughs> because um, not owning a slave or owning very few slaves for someone as important as that in the ancient world means that you're doing a lot of stuff yourself means you're choosing instead of being passive and allowing others to simply carry out your bidding you're getting up and you are choosing to engage in difficulties yourself and it's like it's just a little note that i wanted to kind of pull up there um but it means that you know and, and it's funny because these are really like small things it's not like they're lying on beds of hot coals, you know, to try and purify their soul or whatever. There's not self-flagellation. It's just that means that Zeno was washing his own lettuce, you know, <laughs> um, 
but that's an active decision he's making and an active orientation and, and restructuring of his life. He chose to have no slaves in order to pursue what he sees as virtue. It's just that these actions aren't something like becoming the most successful CEO of the ancient world <laughs> <laughs> or starting a war, land war in Asia, you know. No, I mean, I have to say that glancing down as this, uh, uh, my little copy of Helvia, I have uh, of Seneca that I have with me. It's like when you were remarking earlier on, on this idea of, you know, you can comport yourself in exile in such a way that um, exile becomes uh, glorious and the place from which you were exiled is disgraced in having exiled you. Mm. And uh, he, has, he has a little note here about um, Marcus Cato. Uh, a Roman politician at the time who mm. twice applied for the praetorship and was twice rejected. And he says, was Cato like disgraced in his failure? Well, no, actually, it was it was the praetorship that was disgraced because yeah. <laughs> it rejected Marcus Cato. Yeah. Yeah. All of Rome is disgraced because they didn't have a man as upright as Marcus Cato in its office. But here's the thing, right? So Marcus Cato is rejected. Now, is he he doesn't go and commit suicide like other politicians might have done in, in a moment of disgrace he doesn't you know try and start a coup now it's not like that marcus cato is a stoic himself but seneca's bringing him up and as an example to show that this is this is a model this is a model that fits the fits the pattern which i am in is stepping into and which other stoics have stepped into of stepping out into the world in order to exert will and to make decisions, but not in such a way that you fall into disgrace by your own lack of control. There's a um, there's another interesting point. Um, I'm trying to locate where it is exactly, but it was it was the point when um, Seneca is is actually saying that. Um, to his to his mother that there are that there are rational limits to grief and saying yeah. that you know you don't you don't have an excuse you you even as a woman do not have excuse to uh weep endlessly and so on that's um yeah the, i think it's the first line in chapter or segment uh 16 he says you have no grounds for excusing yourself on the ground of being a woman who has a right to weep without restraint though not without limit he's not well there's a so rationalization there's yeah. this rationalization of the ethic and there's sort of a, um, you know, further on he goes on, well, you know, to show there's an interesting point here about moderation um, because he goes on to say that, well, you know, um, you know, it's uh, you shouldn't weep endlessly, but to have no, no grief would be, you know, a hardness of heart. Mm. And uh, it's, it, there's a natural, there's a natural sort of balance to things. And it sort of reminds me of um, Aristotle's ethics. Yes, I was going to say, yeah, the Nicomachean Right, ethics. where his, he has this similar thread of moderation being this, um, the, the virtuous act being that imbalance between excess and insufficiency. Mm. And that, that the middle path, the moderation is where you have, um, you have true virtue. So there's a, a sort of interesting thread there. Well, and it's also just interesting to point out that Seneca isn't saying the Stoic must show no emotion, <laughs> you know. Right. Like, um, but yeah, the Aristotelian chase there in the idea of um, the virtuous path being the moderate one, the one which doesn't fall to an excess on either side or a deficiency on the other. Yeah. And, and well, this is the section of the work as we're turning to here, you know, as he's, he's moved from pointing out that um, he himself, right, he begins and, you know, he begins as we pointed out with this general overview of the world, 
of the fact that this is peoples all, all the world, all throughout history have moved. Then he goes into the particulars of his own exile and Jen points out models of exile that shows that he's not necessarily going to be disgraced by this um, this exile. In fact, if he acts rightly, he can transform it into greater honour. And then in this last section, he's turning it again into how his mother, as you're pointing out, Harry, might comport herself. Uh, and so there's this, this, yeah, there's this balance here between... Seneca writing about how he, on the one hand, might turn his exile into uh, into glory, or at least into path for virtue. And then there's the second aspect, um, which is the consolation directed into not just, well, mother, I'll be all right because the exile might make me a better man or a more respected man, but mother, I'll be all right. And here's how you can act knowing that. And here's how you can bring yourself into the philosophical and the stoic path of life, which he encourages her greatly in this work. He praises her education and says, I wish my father hadn't stopped you from getting a better education, um, but you have the foundations there already. And I want you to, I, I, I desire for you to study more. And again, it's because he wants reason. He wants her to uplift reason and allow that to conquer grief and conquer remorse or regret and all these sorts of things. Um, throughout this section right and it's this continued appeal to reason which i think is just very interesting it's um at every stage there's a rationalization of um of factors and things and it's and it's sort of that this um this faculty of uh which is unique to humans i think to seneca i don't think he thinks any other creature has a rational faculty to my Mm. understanding um you know, that's sort of the, that is the greatest gift and the highest purpose of man is to, um, to, you know, get every sort of drop out of, out of our reasoning faculty we can to, you know, have excellence in this field. Mm. And philosophy is, is the manner by which you are able to attain that reason and allow that reason to mold you and to place it at the top of, of, what, of what guides you. As he says, philosophy is writing to his mother here. Philosophy is your most trustworthy guardian and it alone can save you from the attacks of fortune. So again, when we go back, as Harry mentioned earlier at the start, you know, uh, don't be, don't be startled by the frown of fortune. You know, don't, don't be dismayed by the frown of fortune or you can't be if you, if you weren't duped by the smile, right? Which How, is interesting. What, what was the method there? <laughs> Well, Seneca must have had philosophy. Like that must have been how he wasn't duped by the smile. Um, that's how, what he's advising his mother. Yeah. To um, right. Well, out. it's interesting that he places in dialectic there, as in the reason of man, philosophy against the smile of fortune, mm. and so they're sort of competing. And you know, I suppose the Stoic ideal is to come to terms and to sort of consolidate the two, um, and you know, to use one to sort of sublate the other. Uh, Less they less the inverse occurs, which I think mm. is what he sort of sees in the um, you know, in the uneducated or the, mm. the those who are sort of um, unconsidered as they've had fortune sort of dictate their reason instead of the other way around. And and, and I think you can just see an example of this, you know. Um, I mean, hopefully, no one, no, hopefully, no one's had any great tragedy occur in their life, but realistically, you know, most people have. But when such things occur. When it, when, it, when it occurs in a way that you're unprepared for, you often hear people saying, I just don't understand you know, the reason for this, the reason for this. Um, and so that's the, that's the reverse that you're talking about there, Harry, where, where fortune conquers philosophy or fortune conquers reason. Because if, if you don't have a strong stance when fortune 
flips, then you will be left wondering and you will find that the reason that you you that guide you through life is insufficient to actually orient like to to guide you through this incident right and that's sort of there's sort of another reflection there in the strength of uh the stoic model of knowledge their epistemology is you know if you have a knowledge of something it's it's actually you know cannot be questioned it's beyond being um it's beyond being interrogated and so Mm. there's this there's this complete um yeah undoubtable foundation that you would operate from as a stoic um you know so no, no ideally no matter what fortune throws your way you have this foundation and you can operate from that without it being um sort of questioned that I, that's sort of this appeal to the order of the universe i suppose in in his in his age um mm. well yeah because within the ancient conception um the idea of genera you know categories i mean the platonic terms the the forms but these you know genera or species they're not simply as the moderns might say well they're just sort of ideas you know i mean the idea of that are, you know to the modern person the genera of it's just what we're calling it at the moment yeah it's just it's just a semiotic as a designator like it's a it's a it's pointing at something but it's not hasn't have reality but to the ancients no they do have reality um and plato perhaps is the most lucid and thorough in his explanation of of how he sees the reality of these categories but to all the ancients there's a reality to them uh there's a spiritual or there's a rational reality which the mind can grasp uh, again like going back into what would become you know nominalism later that that was the the big shift in the um in the 14th century you know or whatever it was but the idea of you know is the mind conforming to the genera or is the genera something that the mind that exists outside of the mind the mind reaches out to anyway these are debates that aren't necessarily pertinent to the topic but that's all to say that you know during this time uh the mind can have surety as you're saying harry it can right there is this yeah there's this hard reality that you can grasp onto and so there's sort of a there's sort of a um you know you know the ebb and flow of of you know fortune and luck and so on you know this is sort of um not not a big problem you know and you sort of rise and you sort of rise above it which mm. is which is interesting you know because we were talking in in previous discussions about how how the greeks would view um the gods coming down and intervening in battles mm. and how they sort of took on this role of a, for, uh, a sort of forces of nature Mm. they were sort of fickle and you know you could you could make many offerings but maybe they wouldn't you still wouldn't have their favor yeah and, and there's this interest there's an interesting thing there where <laughs> right literally and, like Odysseus complains that he's given a sacrifice to God accepted it and they later turn against him and he's like well I've been cheated <laughs> yeah well exactly and and there's there's an interesting point there which is like there's a, a previous mode of thought which is sort of appealing to um, mechanisms to change nature and then the stoic sort of sees this as a futile effort and change and as levi was saying before you know sees sees there being a more productive end in reorienting yourself into a, a better way out mm. i think i think what we're getting at here with with seneca's statement that philosophy will be your guardian against the, the whims of fortune is a more abstracted more universal sentiment but which you find in the narrative of something like the Iliad in which philosophy as it's embodied in Odysseus's 
love for Athena is what safeguards him against the gods coming down and making havoc among the armies. He sees the gods present in battle. He's able to rally the men and, and inform them of this reality. And so when the fortunes change and the gods say, oh, you know what, let's let the Trojans win for a while, Ares go down and make some mischief. Odysseus, Diomedes, these other characters who are philosophers, not, not that that word exists in Homer's day to, to apply to them, but you know, pursuers of the spirit of wisdom can see this and try and turn the tide away simply from being washed like everything for me wash away in the tide of fortune yeah and that's a very interesting point and it goes back to our sort of previous discussion the dialectic between sort of achilles and the other heroes and Mm. odysseus and how could we say odysseus is sort of a proto-stoic in that sense i Um, think i think the stoics could could make an argument to claim it (laughs) right (laughs) um I, i think as well there's a new dialectic um or not, not, not maybe not purely a dialectic, but there is there is something going on in this work that's interesting. Um, Seneca criticizes. I mean, he's already in trouble with one of the Claudians, so why not go whole hog, right? <laughs> he, he he takes a shot at Julius Caesar. Um, uh, Levi, do you have a? Do you, do you know where that bit is? I think I've lost it. Um, it must be in book ten. Yes. No. Here we go. Here it is. I found it. Gaius Caesar whom, in my opinion, nature produced in order to show what unlimited vice would be capable of when combined with an unlimited power, dying one day at a cost of 10 million sesterces. And though in this he had the assistance of the intelligence of all his subjects, yet he could hardly find out how to make one dinner out of the tribute money of three provinces. How unhappy are they whose appetite can only be roused by costly food? Um, But, I mean, that goes into into a broader section, which is not necessarily pertinent, but... In insofar as we're talking about the distinction between the man of, of pure might, pure potential, versus the man of restraint, Gaius Caesar, Seneca is really highlighting him as, as he says, unlimited vice mixed with unlimited power, just unbounded appetite, you know. Which um, is, he's, he's identifying a weakness. And so mm. Seneca points out that this character of, uh, you know, who Nietzsche might say is of, of uh, unbounded will and so on. Mm, a very yeah, Napoleonic Seneca points, sort of figure, yeah. Right. Seneca sees as someone who's kind of consumed by passions, which is which are a weakness. Mm. Um, and of course, we, we, all know the, we all know Caesar's end, right? Caesar was completely subject to the, the fickleness of fortune. He was, yeah, beware the Ides of March. Uh, whereas, you know, Seneca is trying to put forward a way of life, um, which was perhaps unavailable to Caesar which Caesar could never grasp onto you know being a man who was of such prodigious sort of strength and appetite and and might and power Seneca's trying to put forward a model in which uh as he says even death shouldn't be feared and he says once you've once you've lost the fear of death then there's very little else that will that will upset you again just um as I guess he he wraps this up he puts forward a model to his mother, just as he put forward models for his own pattern of being. He puts also forward a model to his mother, which is his, which he, he says is, is your sister. Now, I believe this might be a sister-in-law, uh, only because later earlier on he says that she's an only child. So, um, Levi, maybe I'll have to ask you one day to, to dig up the original Latin of this and, and inform me <laughs> if, I'm, if my hunch there is correct or not, or if the only child part was hyperbole. Um, but, some woman within the family who is either directly or, or indirectly related to his mother, who Seneca puts forward as a, as a model. And um, 
she was a remarkable woman who during a sea voyage back from Egypt where her husband was for a time the governor the ship in that transport was wrecked and her husband killed and she despite the storm and despite the debris didn't simply get out alive but she actually recovered in her escape the corpse of her husband for burial the body of her husband for burial um which is a like it's a truly like remarkable story and and Seneca seemed to know because he says oh I wish that she had lived in the time of the uh great you know ancients <laughs> because they would be all over you know they'd be all over this they would sing her praises to no end but he brings her up as not just someone who comported herself well in that intense moment but who when she was the the governess or the the wife of the governor of Egypt also was marked for a certain character but it's interesting because there's a, there's a there's a dichotomy here where during her time as the um wife of the governor of Egypt she was noted for a sort of reclusiveness and pacifism which led her to be very well, very well respected and not in any way connected to a scandal and yet in this moment of intense danger and difficulty that she is anything but passive <laughs> she is diving into a stormy sea retrieving the body of her husband and somehow making it to safety um and so Seneca is is mixing these two stories together the shipwreck and her her reclusiveness as the as as a governor governor's wife in Egypt and he's and he's weaving those two stories bit by bit and he finishes this penultimate segment of the work by saying you must now show a virtue equal to hers recall your mind from grief and take care that no one may think that you are sorry that you have borne a son um so again i just want to draw this out that um this is a really personal letter this isn't like a a textbook on stoicism 101 but all these little insights that we're getting we can understand that stoicism is not about pacifism because the examples being a passive person being a pacifist either of the two the examples that seneca's giving in his insistence that he and his mother carry out philosophy carry out a lived philosophy to get them through this time the examples are people who are assertive in the world who do great things who attempt and dare great things but who are also capable of restraint of being respected in in that section you know seneca says and it's and it's this call to action it's not a mm. call to passivity it's you must now show an equal uh, a virtue equal to hers mm. Mm. there's yes. not this um you know lay down and anyway we'll see how we go mm. it's uh it's a call to action there's a call to um to to uh heroic virtue but and i think as we wrap this discussion up the question is what kind of action is it and in the previous discussions we've had as we've mentioned we've outlined a certain kind of character in these myths and stories and it's the hero who can show restraint it's the philosopher hero and i think this is what seneca is trying to call out of people in his in his letters especially in the consolation letters and this one is here to his mother you can see it very strongly is that there is a a heroic path there is a path to virtue as Levi said through exile and it's not just for him his mother and his other family can can follow it too even though they're back in Rome mourning his loss and the way in which 
you respond to these things cannot be in the way of an Achilles or an Ajax. It cannot be in the way of a Caesar who's, you know, vice is only equal to his power. Um, it must be in the way of someone who is both restrained but strong. Mm. Uh, Levi, do you have any final thoughts? No, I think I think you wrapped it up just about perfectly there, Sam. I think if anything, it's time to get some words on the page. Yeah, let's do it. Um, Harry, thanks so much for joining us uh, in the discussion. And thank you, Levi, for your time as well. This has been great. And um, it's good. I think this is kind of one of the first really serious calls we've we've had for the upcoming issue. We've had a lot of like branched out communications, you know, one-on-ones, um, passing information along or, or things on the group chat. But it's good to be sitting down with you guys again and uh and yeah pushing through some of this stuff and getting everything collated and ready and i look forward to the next uh, month of work very cool always a pleasure um and to all those listening we hope you enjoyed this discussion if you want to be a part of discussion with us we do have a discord if you want a link to that just get in contact with us via our instagram via our um, Substack, uh via our facebook any of those portals will allow you to get in touch with us and we can give you a link to that where we um, are just ha- able to have more uh, informal and formal discussions with people who are interested in this project, who are enjoying this project. And yeah, a lot of the contributors are all there. Us editorial staff are all there. And um, it's a great place to, yeah, just carry out more of these thoughts. So we hope again that you've enjoyed this and we hope to hear from you in the coming months leading up to this issue's release.